Yeah, so you know, our experience, and many of us have been around for a very long time, is that it is exactly the time that uh, there's pessimism in the market and people are seeing a slowdown. And those are the times which sometimes the best investments are made. Because the entrepreneurs who are working at that time are probably the most resilient to the valuations that you get, probably more attractive than at, at other times. And three, you know, we are really building for the long term. So we should not be affected by what the stock market is looking like, what the short term growth rate is looking like. We are, we are building companies that will come to fruition you know, three, four, five, six, seven years from now. Hi. Wherever you're listening to us, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to Startup Fridays, weekly conversations with accomplished entrepreneurs and VC investors. I'm Hari Arakli, and in this episode, Arun Kumar, managing partner at Celesta Capital, a US-based backer of deep tech companies, talks about why some of the best VC investment opportunities can be found in tough times as they reveal the most resilient entrepreneurs. Kumar's career, into the half-century now, includes leading KPMG India and serving on former US President Barack Obama's administration as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Global Markets. In this conversation, Kumar also talks about embracing change, like going from leading thousands of colleagues at KPMG India to being a part of a team of about 25 at Celesta, the importance of purpose, his love of poetry, and learning to generally enjoy everything that life threw at him. Okay, excellent. Uh, thanks again for making time sure. for this. And, uh, uh, of, I mean, your work and of course, Celesta as well, you know, in, in the tech and business circles, I'm sure folks generally know about it. For a more general audience, maybe you could give us a you know quick snapshot of your very long many decades of journey from, you know, BSE to VC investor and so many things in between. Maybe you can attempt a snapshot and we'll go from there. Okay, sure. So I um, studied physics huh. uh, in Trivandrum at the University of Kerala. And uh, when I was young, I had multiple uh, areas of interest, one of which was definitely physics. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, I didn't pursue that. I was picked up um, by the Tata Administrative Service, now called the TAS, yeah. joined their program, which seemed like a very attractive program. So I joined them. Uh, and my first boss there was Mr. Ratan Tata, who of course later on became the chairman of the group. Uh, I spent five years working with the TAS. And then I left to the, for the United States to do an MBA at MIT at the Sloan School. Mm. When I finished that, I found myself in Silicon Valley. I dabbled in various entrepreneurial things for several years. And uh, one of them actually led to my working with KPMG in the marketplace. It was a software solution for finance people. And then um, I transited from that into joining KPMG. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then stayed with KPMG for several years, almost 20, 25 years. Uh, and I got very interested in the whole area of management consulting, operations, and finance transformation, working with companies large and small, with, with the largest companies as well as um, fairly young companies. Because Silicon Valley was a very stimulating environment to do all that. I also continued to 
keep up my interest in mentoring companies. Hmm. Um, so that was a basic stimulating time in Silicon Valley. Then um, I actually retired from KPMG. I served on the board of KPMG in the U.S. It was a very, um, a very interesting career. And I finished that. I was nominated by uh, President Obama's team to, uh, to join the uh, U.S. government, join his administration as the Assistant Secretary for Commerce, Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Global Markets, and Director General of the U.S. and Foreign Commercial Service. Uh, so it was a great honor to be appointed by the president mm. uh, to this, you know, position that has to be confirmed by the Senate. So I went through that um, very interesting process, a bit long, but very, 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 very thorough process. Uh, I was confirmed by the Senate in March 2014, and I started on my job like a couple of days later. I stayed with that to the end of the Obama administration. So that was a wonderful experience because. Uh, I traveled to perhaps 40 countries, representing the United States, uh, leading various uh, trade delegations, um, engaging in government-to-government dialogues, engaging with government and business leaders in countries literally around the world, hmm. from France to Indonesia to Tunisia to Japan, uh, you name it, not just around the world. Um, I spent a fair amount of time focusing on India because around 2014, there was a change of government in India. It seemed like an opportunity to revive the U.S.-India relationship, which had, for various reasons, gone into a bit of a, bit of a slump the previous year. Nothing to do with the previous government. It just happened for multiple reasons to go into a slump. So it seemed like an interesting time to turn it around. And many of us in the U.S. government were very focused on doing that. That happened, and um, the high point of that was President Obama's second visit to India when he came on a state visit in January 2015 and was a chief guest of the public day parade. And that, in a way, marks a real point of inflection in the relationship, and which has been really growing strongly ever since. Uh, so when I finished with the Obama administration, when that term got over, KPMG uh, asked me just a month before that, that I would consider coming back to India and leaving KPMG in India, now, which I thought was really interesting for multiple reasons. One, I knew the people in KPMG in India they were very talented, very smart, very motivated uh, to, to do things. And I thought it would be really fun to work with you know, such a talented and dynamic group. And second, I thought at a macro level that the opportunities for India were immense. I could see sitting in my global role in the U.S. administration, I looked out a few years, which are the areas where we will see maximum growth? I thought number one was India. Number two would be the ASEAN countries. And number three, looking a little further, would be Africa, yeah. Sub-Saharan Africa in particular. Yeah. I thought you know, a chance to come and work in the Indian market, coming back to India literally after 39 years, was intriguing, and I just took it. Mm. So I found myself in India for five years. I finished my term of five years about 15 months ago. Uh, and actually, within a couple of months of my finishing my term, um, Celeste Capital, which is, a, which is a Silicon Valley venture firm with over $1.1 billion on the management, about 10 years old, but very, very experienced and uh, well known 
founders. They asked me if I would join them as a managing partner. I was spending half my time in the US and half my time in India. I thought this would be a, you know, a really good balance because it would allow me to continue my interests uh, in India and, and uh, you know, build on my understanding of Indian development, both while I was here as well as when I was in the administration. And it also allowed me the balance of spending some time with my family, my, my children, grandchildren, the U.S. Yeah. Go back to my home in California and spend time between various places. That's what I am. Uh, and it's been really exciting because uh, I must say the opportunity in India is all that uh, I thought it would be. I'd seen it at a macro level in my purchase at Chairman and CEO of KPMG India, but now where I work mostly with um, the large corporations, the medium-sized corporations, and with both the central and various state governments. But here I'm working with people, entrepreneurs who are building things from scratch. Uh, and uh, and the talent, again, is just uh, incredible. Uh, the kinds of opportunities that we're seeing here uh, stack up with the best opportunities we see in Silicon Valley. Um, the ecosystem is fast mm -hmm. becoming uh, very, very vibrant. Just last week, I was in Bangalore. I was at the Bangalore Bioinnovation Center. And there was at the Center for Cellular and Molecular Platforms. Right. These places, and you see the entrepreneurs and what they're working with, but they're working on deep technology. They're working on bioconvergence, the kinds of things. And we are investing. They're working on technology-enabled transformation, yeah. uh, major industry. Exactly the things that we at Celeste are focused on. So it was extremely exciting to see all that happening. And uh, you find that um, the talent and the motivation, the ambition to really do things that make a difference is extremely impressive. Yeah. That's my quick story of... Uh, all the way from uh, very nice. I mean, quite comprehensive, but also equally sounded uh, very relaxed. I'm sure that's a testament to your experience of many decades. Uh, for a, for folks who are interested in a bit of a historical context, uh, of course, today it's very exciting that there's a nascent deep tech ecosystem that's beginning to emerge out of India, and uh, I'm pretty sure Celesta will play an important role in building that, helping that ecosystem grow. That's a yeah. You know, when you said you, uh, India was among the top opportunities that you saw, can you delve into that a little bit more? At that time, what is it that you saw uh, about India? No, I had actually been an India watcher for years before I joined the administration. I was at KPMG in the U.S., mm. in California. Uh, I had founded the U.S.-India practice of KPMG, which was really to focus on the U.S.-India corridor. Today, everybody talks about the U.S.-India corridor. Yeah. We were one of the pioneers in the whole concept that the U.S.-India corridor would yield significant uh, economic opportunities. Significant large companies would come out of the corridor and flourish in the corridor. So I had been, back in 2007, I had gotten engaged in that work. And I came quite frequently to India to meet with uh, my counterparts in the firm here, as well as the business leaders, government leaders here. So I've been quite involved. And I could see, I could see the inflection. I mean, 2007, if you came to Bombay Airport, it was a very different airport than the world-class airport it is today. But you could see that the changes were beginning to happen. We were talking about privatizing airports. Right. Uh, the conversations had begun. Of course, they really took off uh, in the last uh, 
10 years ago or so. But, um, but the conversation had begun, but the trend was clear. It was also clear that the, uh, the aspirations and the energies of people, young people were unstoppable. They wanted to do things. Uh, and I think the world has become smaller. They know what people are doing elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, so they, it's easy, it's quite possible to learn. And uh, secondly, large numbers of uh, Indian students were, were coming to the United States. Uh, almost every middle-class family has somebody living or studying in the US. So the two countries were coming closer together to the extent that probably there are no two countries which closer people to people relations in the US language. I mean, it's quite an incredible phenomenon for people to people connect. And see what else has happened over the last uh, 10 years. I mean, look at the US corporations uh, from 50, uh, you know, 35 to 50, I think, of uh, the top corporations in the US have uh, Indian origin executives, people who were born here, studied here, went to the US, and now are at the top top of these companies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who would think that uh, Microsoft, the Google, the IBM, uh, Starbucks, all of these would have, you know, uh, Indian uh, born executives? Yeah. It's quite a phenomenon. The countries have come closer together. Businesses have therefore come much closer together. Today, many of the largest companies in the US certainly most of the technology companies, very large teams in India. Sometimes the teams in India outnumber the teams in the home country. Uh, the kind of work that's been done in India is not just the old back office work, development, innovation, old products. All these are being developed in India. This now leads to the Celeste problems. These folks working here, working in world-class companies, developing leading-edge products, some, some of them will say, look, why don't I do for myself? Why don't I get out and start my own company? And that's exactly what happened in Silicon Valley. Uh, Silicon Valley is grown by spin-offs coming out from large companies. People saying, why don't I do it on my own? Same thing we are seeing happening here. And we'll see a lot more happening. Briefly, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in your thoughts on how, you know, you've, you've been a part of decades of how these things evolved in India in one way or the other. Um, what, how do you see the uh, evolution of the tech industry in India, which became a huge uh, tech services-led industry versus uh, a products and IP-led industry, you know, which happened in the US and elsewhere? Why did we go this way? And, and why did we sort of fail in building our own technologies? Well, you know, I think it started because with the uh, year 2000 situation. Mm large demand for programmers to come and update COBOL programs that were feared to create the crashes when the clock went to zero, zero, zero. Uh, so, so that led to a lot of companies serving US companies all over the United States and actually around the world addressing the UK problem. Uh, so that created a B-shed Indian programmers and Indian companies into large corporations. Soon as that was ending, uh, we had to get problems behind us. You saw the whole internet boom, the dot-com boom, the internet boom. So that was a natural segue, Indian technical talent to serve another area of significant demand. So the good news is that this brought Indian companies 
and uh, Indian technical people close to the customer, close to the customer at the leading edge. So I, I think the, the role of services is a really important one. Uh, I'm not one who says, why are we creating, why do we not create products? Why are we services? Services is an important way of adding value and reaping value. I mean, the Nike services companies have done that uh, in a very good way. It's unprecedented to see the sizes they've grown by, by doing that. And the kinds of problems they're solving, I think clients solve by doing that. And I think that would lead to a situation where there will be products and solutions coming out because when people are at the edge, the leading edge, seeing what the needs are, and then some of them will step off and create products and solutions. I think we'll see a lot of good products and solutions companies coming out of the for the global market, but also for the Indian market. The Indian market is becoming a big market, a market that will sustain technology companies and technology enabled companies. Uh, very much like what happened in China. In China, a lot of other companies that grew based on the size of the Chinese economy. Okay, can you can you talk about some of the areas that you're interested in Celesta now, where you want to step up your investments? Celesta has three areas of focus in its investments. Mm-hmm. Number one is what we call platforms enabling mass adoption of emerging technologies. That's number one. Number two is what we call technologies transforming large industries, technology enabled transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third really are healthcare innovations mostly or other innovations that are the intersection of high-tech and biotech. So, you know, first one we loosely call deep tech, second we call technology-enabled transformation, the third we call bioconvergence. So those are broadly Mm -hmm. the areas in which we, those are the three areas in which we are very keenly focused. Hmm. So we don't want to go outside those three areas. Hmm. Uh, any early examples of companies where you may have already invested uh, or even in other markets, for example? Uh, a number of forms? them. You know, for example, in, uh, in the area of AI, we've invested uh, in a company called Sambanova. We've invested in a company called Percipient. Uh, we've invested in India, and this is really hmm. interesting, in a company called Pixis, generative hmm. AI used for uh, advertising for very targeted advertising company that came out of Bangalore, a young mm. team of founders, very successful in India. Mm. Now they are going global and they are, they've relocated quite a few people to Silicon Valley and uh, they're doing extremely well. Uh, one of the top examples of an AI company coming out of India. And we have a whole list of, uh, a, a list of companies. Mm. Can you delve into the the reasons that you identified these three areas, deep tech, tech-led transformation, and bioconvergence, uh, what is the sort of, what are the trends and developments that you're seeing that tell you that these three areas will, be, will become very big in India? See, I think the way we selected this is partly because of the expertise of our people. I mean, you know, venture capital is a very large area. So you have to pick what are the areas of opportunity that map to the expertise of our people. That's how we picked it. The people we have in the team, they are very deep in mm. technology. And that drove picking these areas. Um, and actually, in terms okay. of examples that talked about, you know, we've had other examples. Uh, we have a very interesting example that I must point to called Idea Forge, 
which is a drone company, completely designed and built in India, uh, which has uh, has been you know we invested about five six years ago, worked very closely with the young founders, and they are now going to go public. Um, their red herring, their prospectus has been accepted by SEBI, and uh, in the next few months, uh, there'll be a public offering. Uh, previously, we had invested in a company called Aura Sanai, a semiconductor design company, which got bought by another company. So we've already seen successful examples in these places right here in India, without even going to the um, mm-hmm. overseas, the um, U.S. examples that I mentioned. Hmm. Can you uh, walk us through the Celesta model, if you will, a little bit? Uh, what is the way in which you approach investing in these companies? How closely do you like to work with them? What stages? For how long? And all of these things. And do you sort of invest from a global fund and you know all of this? Um, first of all, we get a lot of uh, a lot of interesting opportunities are brought to us because people know us. So it has been most of the time. Almost all the time, uh, opportunities come to us, and we be then uh, in a good situation, being able to pick from them. Uh, our view is that we see ourselves as active investors, so we most often lead the deal. We will almost always participate on the board, and when required for the success of the company, we're happy to have more than one person on the board. So there are times when you have up to three people on the board. Idea mm-hmm. Forge for a long time. The executive chairman was one of our partners, Ganesh Subramanian, uh, and we had two others, Sudhir Rao and Nick Bathwaite, on the board of Idea Forge. And the company welcomed it, and it really helped to have three seasoned people providing input. So we are generally active investors, trying to help our company succeed. How does that happen? One, the amount of experience that our folks have. I think uh, well, there are very few firms that have this kind of breadth and length of experience uh, that uh, our partners have. Um, second, uh, the technical insights of our partners are often very deep. Uh, third, uh, you know they can help open doors and make connections that are very valuable to a young company. So these are the various ways in which. We uh, we have companies uh, uh, today. There is fair amount of uh, you know news uh, about you know funding coming down, etc. Uh, by a third or whatever, depending on which you report you look at. I mean, even in India, uh, can you give us some specifics in terms of you know over the next twelve to eighteen months, what is the Celesta view in terms of how you want to invest in startups in India? I mean, would you kind of continue to Keep up the cadence uh, and so on. Yeah, so you know our experience, and many of us have been around for a very long time, is that it is exactly the time uh-huh. that uh, there's pessimism in the market, and people are seeing a slowdown. And those are the times when sometimes the best investments are made, mm. because the entrepreneurs who are working at that time are probably the most resilient to the valuations that you get, probably more attractive than at at other times. Um, and three, you know, we are really building for the long term. So yeah. we should not be affected by what the stock market is looking like, what the short-term growth rate is looking like. We are, we are building companies that will come to fruition you know, three, four, five, six, seven years from now. It's, 
Mm-hmm. These are not overnight. So when you take that, you know, three to seven year view, we have to look at the fundamentals and say, do we have the right entrepreneurs? Are we solving the right problems? Do we have the right technology? Is the technology defensible? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to answer. But mm-hmm. our, our experience is that the best opportunities actually come when uh, the world is looking very pessimistic. Mm. And this may be one of those times. Now, India mm. is a bit of an exception. It's not looking as pessimistic in India as it sure. is elsewhere in the world. Any uh, interesting opportunities, and I don't know if you want to give it away, but uh, still uh, any uh, uh, not so obvious areas of opportunities that, that you have spotted where very interesting things are happening in India. I think technology-enabled transformation is an area where very interesting things are happening. Mm. You know, we have invested in a company in the dairy business called Stellabs, which I think mm-hmm. is a very, very attractive value proposition. Yeah. We have invested in a company called uh, Boat and Brick, uh, which is housing, it's a limitless market for housing in India. Uh-huh. All of them are applying, applying technology to improving the way they do things. Um, so there are lots, I mean, there are, I think every large sector in India mm-hmm. is going to get transformed by the application of technology. And I think deep tech, as I mentioned, I already gave you some examples, is going to be a, a big factor. Uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, I mentioned Idea Forge, I mentioned um, Aura something. Or, you know, in healthcare, we've invested in 5C networks, so radiology, and connect and heal. So there are many, many areas where we'll see transformation driven by technology. Mm. To your earlier uh point about you know, the right entrepreneur with the right kind of ideas and solutions. From your perspective, what sort of what makes up the right entrepreneur and the right startup? I mean, what are your checkboxes, if I can put it that way? So I don't know whether you ever find a perfect situation where sure, we check sure. all the boxes. But I certainly say we want to see passion, we want to see ambition, we want to see technical competence, we want to see an ability to listen because things change as you go. So sometimes when situations change, you want people who are really willing to listen and learn as mm-hmm. to being as opposed to being stuck in an old way of doing things. Um, you know, the most, uh, in my experience, uh, resilient entrepreneurs are people who can listen and learn and adapt. From the Indian startup ecosystem point of view, overall, I mean, you've been looking at it, India, at India in general, in any case, for a very long time. With respect to the startup ecosystem, Today, as you see it, what are some of the strengths and what is still missing? The strengths are, uh, first of all, uh, educated and motivated entrepreneurs, technically educated entrepreneurs. That's a big strength, the large numbers that we're seeing. Because not only only do we want entrepreneurs, we want people who can work in those companies. Uh, Second, we need to see... uh, a lot more venture capital. I think that's an area that there's a lot more scope in the country. Uh, there's you know, more and more we have venture capital players, but for the opportunity, I think there is tremendously, tremendous amount of scope. Um, I think the whole real legal and regulatory ecosystem is fast evolving. Uh, so far, I would say it's very positive the way it's been evolving, but we, we, we need to see more continued evolution so that things can happen fast. You, know, you can incorporate a company quickly, it can be up and running quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the speed with which things happen, 
as I said, definitely it's, it's moving in the right direction. That can go even faster. Um, the supporting ecosystem of research and innovation, uh, we, we, can see, we can use a lot more of that. I, and I mentioned already the BBC and Seacamp and Hyderabad and Sign in Mumbai. Similarly in Chennai, there are some great examples. But for a country the size of India, it would be great to see even more. I think we're good to see more investment in pre-commercial research in the universities. Mm-hmm. This is one of the mm-hmm. big things in the US that has spawned entrepreneurship. You know, you've got the major universities funded by often NSF and other such institutions that really invest in research with no immediate commercial potential. Mm-hmm. And lead to potential. And companies cannot invest in those kinds of propositions because you've got shareholders to to be accountable to on a frequent basis. But that's an area where government investment could be very valuable. So these are, in my view, key areas that need focus. I mean, historically, although, I mean, uh, of course, governments have already always backed uh, that kind of research. I mean, definitely US is a, probably the primary example where government has funded research even with corporate uh, companies, uh, whether it's through the war effort or later on. I mean, I think GE and some of those companies, very good examples of putting in a lot of effort in basic R&D, which led to fantastic commercial products. But do you see that happening with Indian uh, corporations? Well, see, even there... Um G, et cetera, when they did that, they often had a government customer at the end of it. Sure. Uh, so I think you need to have somebody who eventually helps pay for it yeah. because a shareholder may not be willing to take that long-term risk of something that's un- not without proven viability. Uh, hence the need for more investment. I mean, China has done a lot of it. You know, China has, as a result, the number of patents coming out of China, a number of Publications coming out of China has really increased um, because of significant investments by Chinese government. So, in an economy like India, with the talent we have in India, that's an area that would that would need to step up. And I think we are seeing a lot of that. Uh, we're seeing that happening in many ways. Mm-hmm. I, I want to switch to talking a bit more about your own uh, experience. Uh, you know, takeaways from that, but. One quick question I want to insert here is, I mean, in the backdrop of what we've been talking about, you know, uh, especially in the deep science ecosystem, which is very, very nascent in India. Um, and you said that there's much more that needs to be done, especially on the growth side in the VC ecosystem and so on. So what would your advice be uh, to you know aspiring entrepreneurs who want to build uh, you know, hard uh, engineering products, even hardware products out of India? I'd say go for it. You know, if you have the plan and the ambition, uh, you know, just really get a team together, get your ideas together, find the right uh, kinds of people to advise you and help you and go. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I ask is people would often, you know, for example, in in the software as a service uh, sector, the primary market is the US. And quite often as the companies become bigger, uh, Typically, at least one founder will shift to the U.S. and that sort of becomes, uh, of course, legally always the companies would have been U.S. companies only to begin with. 
but then even in terms of operations, the U.S. becomes sort of the main, uh, you know, theater of focus. And and in in deep tech, I guess by definition, companies are competing globally. So I'm just wondering, you know, in SaaS now there's a playbook. In in deep tech, I'm wondering, out of your experience of having seen so many companies, what might be some sort of key components of that playbook for deep tech entrepreneurs? Well, I think um, trying to create a product that is competitive in, in a world-class way is important. Uh, now, the advantage today in India is that the Indian market is large enough. Mm. Uh, for example, in the strategic and defense areas where you can build companies focused here. Mm. But even that to be successful, because eventually you'll have to compete with um, offerings from around the world. I think it's really important to keep a focus on building something that really is competitive. Mm. Mm. Tell us a bit more about uh, yourself. Uh, were you born in Kerala? I was born in Kerala, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, where in Kerala? In Maveri Kerala. Uh, okay, but as a sort of uh, reference point, I mean, from Trivandrum? Well, Maveri Kerala is in Alapi district. Alapi district, okay, all right. And and how did uh, the Lawrence Lovedale School happen? Because that's in the Nilgiris. My father thought it would be a good idea for me to go to a boarding school. And okay. That's all right. Very it happens. What were your parents doing at that time when you were in school? My, my father worked in the meteorological department. You know, ah, okay. Was he a scientist? Or yeah, he was very interested in mathematics. And so. Okay. Is that where your physics interest came up? Yeah, I think so, because when I was young, there were lots of books, of physics books around, all of science and physics books in the house. So very much that was mine. Very much. But he was also interested in literature and writing and poetry. And he also spawned an interest in me in, in writing and poetry. Yeah. So so probably there's a bit of in influence there with your own interest in, you know, writing poetry. And, and I listened to your TED talk where you read out some of your poems. Uh, uh, yeah. But after physics, you switched to more on the business side and you went to TAS. Uh, what sort of uh, picked your interest there? I think it just seemed like an adventure to be able to come to Bombay, work with the Tatas, do something uh, very different, something different from anything that I had visualized earlier. Uh, uh, you know, it, I think it was, um, I, I, I don't know if I had really planned it that way. I might have planned uh, to become a scientist. But this uh, seemed like a very interesting opportunity. Uh, so I don't think my, generally I haven't planned much of my life. It's I'm just, you know, things have happened and I've gone with the flow. Uh, I mean, any recollection of uh, anything memorable uh, through your stint at uh, TAS? I mean, I would think that it even today remains a fairly unique organization, right? I mean, elsewhere, maybe in US, Europe, there are companies which have done that, but in India, certainly. Uh, well, I think the Tata organization is extremely special because it really is imbued with some very deep values. Uh, to start with the history of the group, is that the group has been significantly owned by the Tata Trusts, yeah. which are really trusts that plow money back to the common good. So it's quite uplifting to feel that you're working in an organization, where the fruits of your work actually go back to the country and the community and the world as a, as a whole. I think that's very special. So today we talk about purpose and you know, companies should have a purpose. Well, the Tata's always had a purpose. They've had a post for 100 years. Mm -hmm. uh, ever since um, 
you know, the the Raptata and and Rajantata, the the sons of the founder, they set up the trust and uh, set it up so that the ownership of the group was significantly with uh, entities that had, you know, giving aims in mind, giving for education, giving for healthcare, giving for all kinds of relief. I think that's quite unique. Uh, There aren't too many corporations in the world that have an inbuilt sense of purpose. Organically, it's built in. It's very uplifting, especially when you're young. Um, And actually, all the time, I think I think purpose is very important um, to all to to everyone. When I was throughout my life, when I was working at KPMG, I really felt that. What would really motivate one is purpose, not just profit. I and mean, you have to be successful to survive. Every company has to make a profit. But the real difference is, I mean, what difference are you making to the world? You know, what kind of impact are you making? Yeah. So when you look back, uh, can, you, can you sort of, you know, crystallize sort of the top takeaways from the different phases of of your career? I mean, some of the key lessons that have stayed with you. And earlier on, you mentioned you retained your interest in mentoring companies. So, you know, some of the learnings that, that you've always applied uh, in that process of mentorship, for example. So what might be some of the key takeaways? I, I think for me, the key, what, what motivates me, I would say, one is just keep learning. Keep learning and keep learning and keep moving out of one's comfort zone. Uh, so, uh, I, I think it's really important that for love, for growth, personal growth and learning, um, being ready to move out of the comfort zone uh, is key. I mean, for example, I'm now in, in the age of, in the world of venture capital, uh, having moved from leading a professional services organization, uh, from from leading a, a company with you know, tens of thousands of people to uh, you know, venture capital from the small, we have 25 people in total. And in India, we have you know five or six small small teams. Well, that's a big change. But um, you know, moving out of one comfort, moving beyond one's comfort zone to doing something different, uh, dealing with young ambitious entrepreneurs as opposed to dealing with very seasoned business leaders, many of whom became personal friends uh, to people I hardly know. So these are all areas of moving out of one's comfort zone and learning all the time. So I think learning, learning and moving out of your comfort zone, to me, is one one of one of the lessons. Uh, as I joke, I've retired three times, but never successfully. If, you know, I retired from KPMG in the U.S. Then I retired from the U.S. government. And then I once again finished up at KPMG in India, and now here I'm on another chapter. Um, so that's one. Second, I think, is um, that the people equation throughout all is building the right relationships, making friends, really makes the journey extremely, you know, pleasurable. Mm. Mm. So making friends and you know, paying attention to the relationships, I think, is is important. Kind of generally enjoying the journey, you know, find ways to enjoy what you do, do what you enjoy. Right. Uh, 
this kind of goes back to if you're learning all the time, it becomes more enjoyable. Mm. So I'm not sure if I've been, you know, those are the various dots I would want to connect. Mm. I mean, thinking back, uh, there must have been many sort of, you know, uh, important moments, circumstances that shaped your career, but can you think of one or two uh, pivotal uh, things that happened in your professional career that shaped your career or that were important? Maybe either as a low point or an important achievement uh, and, and what did you learn from them? And there are a number of them. One I think is my joined the TAS. Uh-huh. It's quite, you know, I was in Kerala doing a physics degree and there was outreach to the university there from the TAS on whether there are folks they should talk to. That was a good op- a good break, if you might, to join the TAS. Um, within that, I must say, I really enjoyed working with Mr. Tata, who was a very, very, well, it was, it was a very, very interesting and person with a lot of interests and very forward thinking. So you know, we were both quite young at that time. Uh, but it was, so it was a great pleasure to work with him. Uh, then I going to to, to a uh, graduate degree at uh, MIT was a very big one. So really we had somebody who was advising us, consultant for us, and I was in the Tata group, I was an MIT alum, and he said, why don't you apply? And I applied. I only applied to one place, that was MIT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, got in. Uh, and that was another interesting break. Then later, I would say, joining the Obama administration was a big one. Again, it's pretty happenstance, but um, I happened to be, um, you know, it, it happened. For, and uh, I thought that was a big break. So those were some of the areas where I can see things happening that I might not have planned many years before. Sure. That lesson from that is, you know, I would say if I were to retrofit a lesson, it would be, you know, be ready for opportunities when they come. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Fair enough. One, the other thing lesson would be sometimes they may be, they may take you beyond your comfort zone, may take you to mm. do things that you were not doing before. Mm. But uh, go for it. Mm. Very nice. Um, so you've had an enduring interest in poetry as well. What's behind that? No, you know, I had two reasons. One is my father was very interested and then when I was in Lovedale, the, we had an English teacher, um, Mr. McMahon, who was extremely interested and he was a very good reader of poetry, mm-hmm. very sensitive to poetry. So those got me interested uh, in poetry and I just kept up that interest. So I've been reading, I have generally read a fair amount and I keep reading a fair amount. Uh, and uh, I'm not a consistently productive poet, but so every 10 years I come out with a book Okay. Uh, but I write in between and every 10 years I, I try to pull it together into a book. So you've written now two or three books now? Two. Two books. The first okay. one came out in 2010, second one in 2020. And, and both are compilations of your poetry? Yes. Okay. When is the next one due? <laughs> 2030. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, very nice conversation, sir. Thank you again for very generously making time for me. No, thank you. Most certainly. Definitely hope to keep the conversation going. Yeah, love to, honey. That's it for this conversation. I'll be back soon with another episode of Startup Fridays. 
until then have a great week ahead i'm hariya rakli and thank you for listening